Azores Plateau is about the size of Iceland, and it flanks the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. And in fact, it sits at what's called a triple plate junction. You have the African plate, the Eurasian plate, and the North American plate all meet right there at the Azores. And where they meet, I think that's a natural hinge point. And there are cross-transecting the Mid-Atlantic Ridge at right angles are what are called transformed faults. And those transformed faults could be seen as the natural consequence of this movement of the Earth's crust. One of the consequences of that would be this changing, shifting landmass. So if you look at the, the what are called the bathymetric charts, the charts of the ocean bottom of the Atlantic, you will see the, what is called the Azores Plateau. What are now the Azores Islands are mountains on that plateau. Those islands are literally the peaks of mountains. And if we go back to the Ice Age and we factor in both the isostatic movement of the, of the ocean bottom and the sea level bottom, <clears throat> It becomes very plausible that the plateau could have been above water at the time. Could the readings from Edgar Casey and the stories told by Plato be pointing us to this volatile area of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge? Could this be the location of the legendary center of Atlantis beyond the Pillars of Hercules that was destroyed when the Earth transitioned out of the Younger Dryas and rapidly shifted to its new axis around 11,600 years ago? As science searches for answers of how this anomalous geological time period ended, there are two prevailing themes that keep recurring. During the Younger Dryas, all cycles and patterns were drastically altered, and water is the prevailing element that is woven throughout these legendary tales. I think the evidence for, for flooding is incontrovertible. Even mainstream science now admits <laughs> the age of reason and the age of enlightenment was, was the development of science was an attempt to get away from the catastrophism of religion. Right, and this gave rise to concepts like gradualism and uniformitarianism. And particularly with geology for like 60, 70 years, it was a stated goal of that science to explain everything we see based on the gradual processes of erosion and, and gentle change that we can observe everywhere. But that's now started to be, I think, a bit corrected. Like some of this catastrophism is coming back in. Even now, the mainstream science has accepted that, yes, the end of the last ice age gave rise to these just catastrophic flood events. It's incontrovertible that there were cataclysmic floods. Uh, during that period. We're coming out of a century or more of models of Earth change in Earth history that are very gradualistic. So the assumption is, is that a cave would have been produced over hundreds of thousands, even millions of years, one drop of water at a time scenario. Well, that has been on its way out since the early 1980s. With the discovery of the dinosaur killer, it opened up the possibility that maybe, well, maybe we need to consider that catastrophic episodes really do happen. That doesn't mean that the gradualistic processes aren't working, but one catastrophe in a matter of a year can do more work than tens of thousands of years of gradualistic change. When we look at the evidence from a scientific perspective, what we have to say is that whatever happened to melt the ice in the time of the Younger Dryas so quickly, some event, an extraordinary event, if it were happening today in the modern world, we would call it a black swan event, something that created such a powerful effect on the earth that the human population, by some estimates, was decimated down to only a few hundred thousand from what it was at that time, that it forced human migrations in ways that we had never seen before as the, the sea levels rose. So they became isolated populations that began to rebuild, repopulate, and regrow, developing the technologies that they had in their memory from when there was a common connection. And I think this is one of the reasons why we see such continuity of human knowledge 
that range all the way from the architecture that allows the building of pyramidal structures using megalithic stone blocks, no mortar, high tolerances between those blocks, certainly the mathematics that allows for that kind of construction, the cosmology that tells us about our relationship to the sun when the growing seasons end, when they begin, our relationship to very key star systems that seem to be uniform throughout these civilizations. And we have to ask ourselves, how could this be possible Please. unless there was time that there was communication Ryan. between those civilizations? And if there was that time, it would have been before the time of this catastrophe. And what we're seeing are the remnants of that catastrophe and the civilizations rebuilding to become the world that we know today. The origins of our most cherished ancient myths that encapsulated the strength and bravery of our ancient ancestors now has science to provide a potential time frame where humanity rose to great technological and spiritual heights and defied the laws of nature before a sequence of catastrophes ravaged this planet. There is little doubt that the previous world nearly ended with the younger Dryas, but the question remains, how drastically did the fires and floods change the face of the planet and redirect the course of human evolution? That's a Gaia show. <clears throat> Please do get your subscription. Only 12 bucks a month for the best programming in the universe. Because this podcast keeps getting ruined by the fucking government. So I'm re-recording it from my other podcast. Fire shows on the flood. From what I understand, there's Nibiru. Throughout modern history, the moon has been woven into legend and lore. Most have associated our moon with strange anomalies, psychic phenomenon, and many other tales from the dark side. This natural satellite is known to control the Earth's tides, cycles, and patterns. But as the younger Dryas period came to an abrupt end, and the mighty oceans continued to rapidly grow, Many alternative researchers have pointed to lunar clues that reshape our understanding of our perfectly sized and placed celestial partner. Could the brightest and largest object in our night sky play a much larger role in creating a balance on this new watery planet of this majestic solar system? One of the greatest mysteries in our world, in our solar system today, is a mystery that is so obvious that some people simply take it for granted, and that is the existence of our moon. Our moon is one of the most mysterious moons in the entire solar system I think it's for an observation deck. When we begin to look at the mathematics of our relationship to the moon, what we find is a precision that exceeds anything that we would expect to see in nature. For example, the distance between the Earth and the moon is exactly 108 moons, 108 diameters between the Earth and the moon. This number comes up very frequently in the Hindu and the Buddhist traditions. 108 is the number of beads on the mandalas that are used in the prayer. And the number is used to honor our relationship to the cosmos and in the cosmology. This is what we're told in these traditions. Then you begin to look even further, the distance between the Earth and the Sun is exactly 108 suns. Can this be a coincidence? Or is this something that nature would do on its own? 
There are a lot of interesting facts and mysteries surrounding mm -hmm. the moon. It's a unique relationship we've never observed. Wonder what anywhere else in that the number means. One oh eight. Angel number. A relationship between a moon and a planet quite like what we have on planet Earth with our moon today. Of all of the planets in our solar system, our moon is the largest moon relative to the planet that orbits than any other planet in the solar system. Our moon is fully a quarter of the size of our planet. It's a very anomalous object. In fact, some of the quotes in the early days of lunar studies were saying it's easier to explain why the moon shouldn't exist than why it does exist. Or all theories of the lunar origin don't make sense. And so we're, we're still confronted with that. We're still, I think, struggling with this idea of how the moon came to be what it is. According to mainstream science, there are three prevailing theories on the origin of the moon. The first proposes that the moon and Earth were created around the same time, when the solar system was forming roughly 4 to 4.5 billion years ago. The second theory is that the moon was created somewhere else and migrated into our solar system and was captured by the gravitational forces of the Earth. The third and most controversial theory is that there was a collision between Earth and a protoplanet named Thea. There was Nibiru. The debris from this collision That's where the water eventually came from. formed into the moon as we know it. Since the late 1960s, alternative researchers and skeptics of the mainstream theories remain focused on an Apollo 12 misfortune that sparked a string of new theories about the origin, structure, and purpose of this strangely perfect sphere. Apollo 12 astronauts doesn't rotate. We only see one side of the moon, causing it to impact on the surface. on the other side. It caused the moon to resonate and ring like a bell for over an hour. This shocked NASA scientists, and they tried to replicate that situation during Apollo 13. And so they sent an intentional impact down to the surface, causing it to resonate for over three hours. So to put this in a little bit of perspective, if we have a seismic event on the planet, those only last for a few moments in time. When the Apollo astronauts were doing the seismic activity, they created seismic waves on the surface. And the idea is to measure the amount of time that those waves take to travel from the surface into the core and come back to the surface. On Earth, seismic waves typically take maybe two minutes. When, when there's an impact, the term is it will ring and it will ring for maybe two minutes, and, and then the ringing stops. On the moon, famously, the astronauts said that it was ringing like a bell, meaning that the ring continued long beyond that two minutes, typically around 10 minutes, and in some cases it lasted for hours. That is only possible if those seismic waves are moving through material as well as empty space, or some space that is less dense that allows the propagation of those waves. If the material is more dense, it will soak up those waves. So this is one of the reasons it is what is called the ringing of the moon that leads to speculation that the moon may not be solid. When we talk about hollow, I don't know if it means that it is, is hollow like a, a sphere that is empty inside, but very possibly beneath the surface, deeply filled with caverns or possibly large spaces that are open and then other spaces that become gradually more dense. Studies from NASA and also from other space agencies have also shown that there seems to be uh, gravitational anomalies on the moon. In, in other words, the density of the moon may not be consistent. And so but potentially you could theorize that a reason for this might be that there are cavities in the moon. 
It may not be entirely solid. As the discoveries during the space race surfaced, writers began weaving alternative scientific theories with fictional tales, cementing the mystery of the moon into popular culture. Four years after the Apollo 12 mission, British rock band Pink Floyd released their eighth studio album, The Dark Side of the Moon. This iconic album title influenced millions to question, why do we never see the dark side of the moon? One of the there's a holiday area for the rich is what is called the tidal lock, T-I-D-A-L lock. And what this means is that the rotation of the moon exactly equals one orbit around the Earth, which leads us to only see one view of the moon, no matter where we are on Earth. We will never see what is called the dark side of the moon because that rotation as it's moving is exactly locked into the rotation of our planet. It looks to us like the moon is not moving. No other moon in our solar system has such a rotation. The moon's total mass and its assumed volume and its assumed mass and density are such that it should have settled out to this form of a sphere. The problem is, is that a sphere would have a single center of mass, a single moment of inertia, which means that it would be free to rotate on any axis. But that's not what's happening, because the moon's rotation on its axis is completely and precisely locked in to its period of orbit around the Earth. Now, what does that imply? It implies that the mass of the moon is not distributed radially symmetrical about its center of mass. Right there, that's a huge anomaly because the moon should have settled out to a spherical shape and then there would be no coupling between the moon's rotation and its orbit. But there is this coupling, what's called a one-to-one spin-orbit coupling. So that in itself is anomalous. Why has the moon not done that? Well, it implies that something within the lunar crust is extremely rigid. When the Apollo astronauts began exploring the surface geologically, even they were surprised at the results of some of the tests they found. One of the most mysterious factors is the moon obviously has many craters around it of different sizes, presumably from different impacts from objects of different sizes. And you would expect those impacts to go to varying depths because of the velocity of the impact. What the astronauts found is yes, the craters vary in diameter, but they all go to about the same depth as if they are hitting some kind of a mysterious boundary that will not allow them to go any deeper. And look up the face of the moon and you see these gray splotches on the moon. Those are called the maria. The maria are like sort of like lava plains, right? They're basaltic rock. They're circular, more or less. Some of them are very circular, almost certainly caused by impacts. Well, when you have a crater that's say 200 miles wide it should be 20 miles deep but on the moon once you get to about a three mile depth they continue to get wider but they don't get any deeper it's almost like you're trying to throw something against like a tank or something it's so hard and so resistant yeah. that craters are not excavated to 20 miles deep so you've got this extremely rigid crust which is inexplicable this is really only the beginning. I mean, then there's the mass concentrations that were discovered when the lunar orbiters back in the early 70s were going around the moon, passing over the great Maria. They would pass over the center, and as they're going along, 
all of a sudden they dip in their orbit because there was some tremendous gravitational pull mm -hmm. that literally caused them to deflect downward. It followed that whatever was causing this extreme gravitational pull had to be near the surface. So what kind of an object could do that? Well, they came up with a hypothetical object that would be like a piece of cast iron, like 100 miles in diameter. So in other words, again, it's more evidence that the crust of the moon is extremely strong and extremely rigid. What are these mass cons? Nobody knows. As astonishing synchronicities around the size and orbit of the moon drive alternative researchers deeper into the mystery, evidence is mounting that this anomalous structure in our night sky is even stranger than fiction. The evidence now strongly leads to the proposition that there is a fourth possibility for the origin of our moon, in addition to the three that are accepted in traditional science. And that is the possibility that the moon is an artificial body, intentionally engineered, either in place or brought from somewhere else, a long time ago, when we began That's my the mathematics of the moon itself. This is where we know beyond any shadow of a doubt that nature cannot provide for the circumstances that we see in the moon today. First of all, the orbit of the moon itself Typically, the moons that orbit the planets in our solar system, they orbit at the equator. Our moon is offset exactly 6.7 degrees from the equator, which happens to be precisely the location that is required to stabilize the rotation of our Earth so that it doesn't wobble, to stabilize the tides and the rhythms that allow life to be as it is, both marine and terrestrial life as it is. If the moon were not there, we would have a more erratic, we would have exceedingly erratic tides, very high tides, very low tides, and at differing times, not the rhythms that we see today. When we look up at the moon, we really don't know what we're looking at. But when the ancients looked up at the moon, they looked at it as something that was brought here intentionally. Now, what if we just speculate and think, well, what if the moon was brought here with the intention to calm down the planet? I mean, think about what happened during the Younger Dryas, the, the, the cataclysmic beating that the Earth took. It, it was going to require something to calm down the seas, calm down the volcanic activity. What if that's what the moon was brought here for, as this stabilizing force so that civilization could ultimately come to a plateau, but then also flourish afterward? If there was a time of no moon, and then a moon was created to stabilize the energies of the Earth, what we do know is the moon not only controls the tides, but controls the underground waters as well. And if they're going out of control in an impact, in a kind of end-of-the-world situation, then you're going to be jarred from the inside out as well. So, if it, the moon was placed there, it was to regulate not just the surface waters, but the waters beneath the Earth themselves, because I think they could have been going out of control. Imagine tidal waves from the inside of the Earth as much as from the outside of the Earth. In our exploration of the Younger Dryas, we talked about how it could have began and what kind of catastrophes that befell our planet. But what about its end? What brought it to such an abrupt end? Well, let's turn our eye back to this galactic federation, a force so powerful that had technology so strong that it could destroy an entire planet as big as Tiamat. <laughs> What if they looked upon our planet, saw the destruction that had been raging for over a thousand years, and said, okay, we need to stop this. We need to bring some peace back to this planet. How would they intervene? What would they do to mitigate 
What? Catastrophes that were happening upon our planet during the Younger Dryas. Kill us off. And Swaru tells us that as a result of the explosion of Tiamat, the whole solar system was thrown into disarray. This caused an imbalance to the Earth's orbit and axial tilt, resulting in a great number of catastrophes. So in order to help, the Federation placed one of their artificial biospheres into Earth's orbit, right into the perfect location, to counterbalance the disarray and stop the catastrophes. Failure to stabilize the Earth would mean that our planet would enter a more elliptical orbit, creating a completely uninhabitable environment. Several traditions throughout history, after the Younger Dryas, like the Druids in Europe and the pagan practices in Rome, have legends of moon ceremonies. These rituals aided in locking the moon into the misunderstood categories of witchcraft and magic. But what about the time when the Atlantean Empire was rapidly colonizing the planet over 12,000 years ago? How different was this planet, the rituals, and the ancient sky? before the Younger Dryas. There is little doubt that the moon has an extreme influence on the water of the planet. But what if this planet wasn't completely covered with water yet? Scientist and author Hans Schindler Bellamy illuminated carvings from Tiwanaku in Bolivia that were believed to have been created before the Younger Dryas and the current moon was in place. So we look at structures in Tiwanaku, we see carvings that talk about the moon. On the calendar gate, we have a very interesting inscription that seems to suggest that a smaller planetary body once circled around the Earth before the moon we see now was put into place. We have cultural traditions that speak to a time before the moon was in our orbit. All the way from indigenous traditions, even biblical traditions in the book of Job, Job 25.5, speaks to a time when the moon did not shine, when the moon was not in the sky. Other indigenous traditions tell the same thing. Are they preserving a memory from their ancestors that are telling us in the only way they know how, without the writing on the pages of a book per se, that they are preserving a memory of some time in the Earth's history when we had no moon? Throughout ancient mythology, there have been several lunar deities. According to the Greek poet Homer, the region now known as Greece was once called Arcadia. The inhabitants of that ancient land are referred to as both the Arcadians and Athenians. Could the legends passed down from this civilization provide more clues to a time before our moon was in its current position, and a new goddess emerged? Selena is the name of the moon that was given to it by the people in classical time, by the Greeks and by the Romans. But there is a reference to the people who were devoted to her, who were said to have existed even <clears throat> before the time that the moon existed in our sky. And these were the Akkadians, the people of Akkadia. And they were said to have been around before the moon itself actually rose into the skies. We could be talking about the peoples that existed before the time of a major cataclysm, with the most obvious one being the younger Dryas. And I think that this brings us certainly in the right area that we should be looking for answers to do with these pre-Selenite people. In other words, those that existed before the current moon shone in the sky. 
43 BC, Ovid writes that the Arcadians are older than the moon. So now we're coming up into the time of Jesus where they're still talking about this possibility of a civilization, the Arcadian civilization that existed or is older than the time before the moon was in Earth's orbit. 200 years after Aristotle, we have Apollonius of Rhodes. He's a librarian at the Library of Alexandria. He has access to all the world's knowledge, including texts that were supposed to exist from the time before the flood. And he also believed that the Arcadians lived in a time when there was no moon. The bottom line is that they are accepting this idea that the moon is something new to human experience. When we look at ancient civilizations recording the existence of the moon, one of the earliest examples that we see is what's called the Disk of Nebra. It's dated about 4,000 BP, 4,000 before present. And it actually shows the moon itself. It shows the solstices. This is one of the first examples that we're seeing. Civilizations before this time do not appear to be recording the existence of the moon, at least as we know it today. There is evidence as well in these ancient traditions that the moon has not always been at the location in space as it is that it was actually closer to our planet at one point and now has moved further away. All of this contributes to the possibility that this is not a natural object, that it is somehow an ancient engineered object in mythology, we had a guy with the name of Enoch. Enoch was taken away by the extraterrestrial. He was a mother spaceship. And there, one of the extraterrestrials says to the human, Human, look out at the window. Do you see this little light out there? You humans call it moon. But the moon has no light by itself. The moon receives this light from the sun. And then he explains why the moon sometimes full and half. Now, simply this statement, Stone Age time, is a proof of scientific information because no human could have known the moon has its light from the sun. You can prove simply by a few phrases that there was an extraterrestrial influence. Like the legends of the moon, extraterrestrial influences have also been mislabeled and misunderstood. But there are several stories throughout the ages where those from the stars helped humanity in various ways. Swarwood tells us that the moon is emitting a radiation field around our planet. A lot of the scientists will refer to this as the Van Allen Belt. Scientists today will tell you that this Van Allen Belt of radiation is caused through the interplay of the sun and the magnetic fields of the Earth, creating this electromagnetic field around the Earth. Swarwood gives us a different perspective. When we look to the moon as part of a way of mitigating the catastrophes of the Younger Dryas, Swaru tells us that the moon is emitting the Van Allen belt as a means of increasing the density of the planet. Now, regardless of what you think about what this Van Allen belt is, it is a measurable field. It is detectable. It is proven by science that it is there. But what is it really doing for us? When we think about all that we know about the moon, remember, when we landed on the moon, it rang like a bell for three hours. And we went back to the moon and intentionally crashed a spaceship into the moon just so we could measure this. That is a dramatic moment in human history because it compels us to look back at these ancient myths, what Ovid was saying, what Anaxagoras, what Aristotle, what Plutarch, what all these Greek philosophers were saying about a previous civilization that existed before the moon was in place. And now we get this very technological description of the moon. It's hollow, like a spaceship, like some kind of a Death Star, perhaps even. This is the, the picture that's now being painted of the moon. And in one instance, you look at that and you think, this is terrifying. Because we're talking about what kind of a civilization has the power to bring the moon and put it so perfectly in place. But then on the other side, if you look at that, you think, wow, 
what kind of a civilization has the power to do that? They must love us so much that they put the moon in the exact place that it needed to be for Earth to become stable once again, and we are the benefactors of that action. I think the moon has played a significant role in our history, and I think it's absolutely deserving of a lot more study and open-minded interpretation of, of some of the ancient legends about it. I think we owe it to ourselves to go back to the moon and uh, do the experiments with the best science of the modern world so that we can tell ourselves truthfully, honestly, factually, is our moon a natural moon or has it been created artificially by an intelligence that placed it there for our benefit? And so what does that mean for us today? Strait of Gibraltar, this majestic channel connecting the Mediterranean Sea and the Atlantic Ocean was a recurring theme in mythology. The ocean levels were drastically lower, making this waterway a massive canyon, and the two mountain ranges along the sides were known as the Pillars of Hercules. What lies beyond these great pillars, the powerful Atlantic Ocean, has been a mystery in the lore and legends. Atlantis, Atlantis, and Atlantica are some of the names throughout history. Alternative researchers search for potential pieces and parts of this influential empire all over the planet. But what happened? Roughly 11,600 years ago, when this powerful ancient empire came to a very abrupt end. The lost continent of Atlantis has been the subject of stories and fables and music throughout history. It's deeply ingrained into our culture and our memories as a tradition. But the question is, did it really exist? Do we have evidence that it existed? And if it did, what does it mean to us today? The story of Atlantis. I'm going to have to cut this short. Come back if you want to hear more. Hi there. We're listening to Gaia shows about is arguably Atlantis. the greatest of all of the ancient mysteries. Uh, we're talking about a huge island continent somewhere out in the Atlantic Ocean that thrived, but then was destroyed in one single night and day through earthquakes and floods. And for hundreds of years, we've tried to find out where exactly Atlantis is located and to try and find it. Was it closer to the Pillar of Hercules? In other words, just outside of the Mediterranean, maybe the Canaries, maybe the Azores, 
or was it much further away? We're still looking now. There is pieces of evidence. There are archaeological remains. There is possibility of the survival of some of the peoples of Atlantis, both in the Americas and possibly even in Europe and Africa. But it's an enigma that we have to take hold, look at everything and study everything, almost from the point of beginning it again. Atlantis can really be seen as like a global civilization. And ideas were spread around the world. There was global communication. There was technologies. There was megalithic construction. There may be even a technology similar to us today. But because so much devastation took place, there's little evidence apart from a few places that are being discovered in relatively recent years. One thing is for sure, Atlantis did exist. There is no way out. And we don't know where it is. There are different possibilities which we find in the literature. Most of it, they say, it's in the Mediterranean Sea. It was near the island of Creta, sunk there. Others says, and it's even written, out of Gibraltar, where today the Bermuda Triangle is. There are different possibilities. No one else knows for sure what Atlantis was. Throughout ancient Egypt, there are many clues that point to this great civilization beyond the great pillars of Hercules. Strange hieroglyphs in Egypt, in the temple of Seti in Abydos, depicting what looks to be a helicopter, plane, submarine, and zeppelin, have puzzled alternative researchers and led to speculation that this once great pre-Diluvian civilization reached the height of our current technology. The relics buried along the Nile riverbank likely hold many more clues to help us understand the power and influence of the mighty Atlantean Empire. When you unpack the, the story of Atlantis, you realize that it's an Egyptian story, that it's the Egyptians trying to come to terms with or understand who their divine ancestors were. And you can only imagine them around 400 BC looking around and seeing massive pyramid complexes and asking the question, well, well where did these come from? I mean, traditional Egyptology says that they were built in 2500 BC, 1500 years or so before the time of Plato, but yet they're writing these stories telling about an advanced civilization that existed long before them. In the Egyptian oral tradition, <coughs> Egypt was originally called Kem or Kemet black land or even the land of gold and in the stories they, they're always referring to divine ancestors that originally founded Egypt and by extension we're, we're asked to believe that these divine ancestors were perhaps the Atlanteans and that they were the ones that were responsible for all these incredible temples and much of the technology that they were seeing in ancient Egypt. One of the legendary Egyptian gods and scribes known as Toth left behind his own set of ancient records known as the Emerald Tablets of Toth in which he describes seeing the entire story of the legacy of Atlantis, from its primitive origins of purity of knowledge to eventually becoming corrupted by war and empire building. And Toast describes how the survivors of Atlantis were who came to Egypt to create the ancient Egyptian civilization known as Kemet. Toast describes how the technology and knowledge from Atlantis was passed to Egypt. It was there that he describes how there was a great hall known as the Halls of Amenti, where they had a great library Contained within this library was all the knowledge of the past, including Atlantis. The connection between Egypt and Atlantis, I think, is cultural. For instance, we've got mummification, we've got the uh, extended skulls, the cranial deformation, and also we've got the practice of magic with the Book of the Dead. And we've got pyramid building. So where did all of this come from? Did it just arise overnight in ancient Egypt, or was it the legacy of Atlantis? 
So I think the links are throughout the culture of ancient Egypt, not just in the monumental building, but in its culture and identity. I think it's a direct fallout of Atlantis. Historical legends state that around 450 BCE, Athenian statesman and poet Solon traveled from Greece to the Nile and began studying the ways of ancient Egypt. In a temple in the ancient city of Sais, there was an elder priest named Sanchis that told him of the tales of Egypt's ancestors from a lost civilization. When Solon returned to Greece, the legend began growing, and Atlantis was eventually woven into books by the philosopher Plato through his works Timaeus and Critias. In a way, these dialogues are sort of like Plato's family story. It's a story that was passed along from his ancestor, Solon, who 150 years before the time of Plato had traveled to Egypt. He was told by the priests there the point of origin of the divine ancestors of the Egyptians was this island civilization called Atlantis that was said to have been located beyond the pillars of Hercules out in the Atlantic Ocean. No one at this time, save for maybe the Egyptian king's list or others, were talking about civilizations many, many thousands of years before Plato's time. What is most interesting to me is Plato's dating of the end of Atlantis. He says it's about 9,000 years before Solon, which puts us about approximately 9,600 BCE based on our calendar. So I think that helps confirm that these traditions were based on reality, that there really was this early cycle of civilization. Now we have to ask, or we have to consider, what happened to people between the end of that cycle of civilization and the reemergence of civilization? The idea and the story of a civilization that disappeared in a deluge, or an island that sinks under the sea, that turns up a lot in India, in Ireland, in North and South America. I think that there is lots of evidence of the story. Annoyingly, we can't even verify Plato's text because the, the Temple of Sais, which is where the original text was copied from and recorded by the ancient Egyptians, that's fallen into the Delta. And so we can't even go there now. I wish we could, because then we could we could probably verify the story. Ooh, what that means, fallen into there. the Delta. So what does that mean? To trust the text, and we just have to go from what Plato says. And what we can do is we can source around and we can see what's verifiable from a scientific point of view, water? from the geology and we the geography, some divers on and that. we can put it up against all the other ancient lore and see what's similar, and then you can create a picture. It tells, it tells a very specific story. Plato was, he was a cunning guy. You can't take everything at face value because what was happening here at the time is that the Greek culture is in its ascendancy, and they're borrowing things willy-nilly from the Egyptians, which we know. And we're also borrowing a lot of ideas from the Indus culture and the Indian culture. And we know that because their main god, Zeus, for example, was a corruption of the word Deus, which is one of the main gods in the Indian pantheon. Part of what Plato was doing in order to give the Greek civilization a perfect foundation from which to start democracy, he starts getting the ideas from Solon of a perfect society. Skeptics who look at the Atlantis story and say it can't possibly exist because Solon could not have seen accounts of the destruction of a continent in Egypt, for instance, are totally wrong. Every Egyptian temple would have on their walls what were known as foundation texts. Uh, and these start with creation, literally, and then move forward the construction of the first enclosure, the first temple, uh, the first city, etc., etc. And the fullest remaining account of a foundation text in Egypt is at a place called Edfu in the southern part of the country, huge great temple complex. And on the walls there, 
it talks about just such a cataclysm. And what it says is that there was this island called the Island of Creation or the Island of the Egg, and that on here, the earliest beings to inhabit the world created an enclosure, the first temple, and then suddenly there was something bad happened. What they refer to as an enemy snake suddenly appears in the sky, and there is a period of darkness. And suddenly the waters rise up and cover over this primeval island, destroying not just the temple, but all of the inhabitants. When people hear about Atlantis, many are familiar with Plato and the work that he had connected to the Timaeus and Critias and descriptions left behind. But many aren't aware that there were other Greek philosophers that knew incredible details of Atlantis, such as Diodorus. Now, the reason why there are other individuals that knew this information was that Plato was not the one who was told this from the temple priest of Sais. Solon actually told Socrates, as well as other Greek philosophers, which is why the story has to come from multiple people and not one single source. When we combine the information from Diodorus along with Plato, what we have is a cohesive narrative that connects with a very specific time period that Atlantis was described as being destroyed 11,600 years ago. Now that time period matches up not only when Plato was alive and existed, telling his story, but matches up with ice core samples and geologic evidence from the Atlantic Ocean Basin of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge that if we compare, ancient records show us that there were incredible catastrophes going on at this exact time period that's described by Plato and Diodorus for the destruction of Atlantis, matching both the descriptions of its location as well as a time period that was causing widespread destruction all across the Earth more than 11,000 years ago. In their descriptions, Plato and Diodorus are emphatic that Atlantis was originally a very pious or righteous civilization. The emphasis was on their, their connection with the gods, that the Atlanteans themselves were considered to be hybrid beings. They were, they were part human, part divine. They were, they were demigods, and they had been warned, especially by Zeus, that as long as they adhered to their spiritual beliefs and, and maintained their piousness and righteousness, that everything was going to be fine with Atlantis. But of course, as Plato tells the story, they wavered from that, and Atlantis then begins this long decline into darkness that culminates with the, the total destruction of their civilization in a single day and a single night. Tales of Atlantis were prevalent in ancient Greece, but as with any civilization that is destroyed by cataclysm, the evidence to prove the exact location has been much harder to find. Plato tells us that the main island was closer to the actual opposite continent that he refers to, which I would take to be the Americas. And all the indications are that it was some distance out. And we can say this because he says that where the sunken land of Atlantis was now these mud shores, in other words, very shallow areas of sea that a vessel could very easily get you know, grounded on, these, on this mud. Now, various other ancient writers, contemporary to Plato, also talk about these mud shoals and they add something very vital about them, and that's the fact that this area was also covered in seaweed. And this tells us that we are dealing with the Sargasso Sea, a massive area between the Azores and the Bahamas, uh, quite literally covered in seaweed. When I started to research Atlantis, and I started looking at it from a scientific point of view, the geography and the geology and saying, okay, is it plausible what Plato recorded? And when you look especially into the, the mid-Atlantic and all of the geology and everything that's going on there, it is actually plausible. Mm -hmm. It's not impossible. It was claimed in like the 1960s, they sort of did a scan of the ocean floor mm -hmm. and they said, no, there's, there's no lost continent there. And so people kind of took that and went, 
okay, and they started looking for Atlantis in other places, which then made the whole Atlantis search kind of a joke because you could go, oh, maybe it was here, maybe it was in Australia, maybe it was in Antarctica. And people stopped looking in the original place that Plato said it was. But if we refocus back to that whole area and look at what went down, it turns out that, yes, the the middle of the Atlantic Ridge is an extremely volatile area. It's on uh, this sort of trifactor of three plates. They all meet right at the Azores. It's this incredibly delicate place. And if any natural global catastrophe was going to happen, I would not want to be there because it's the place that if any island was going to sink, it would be there. In 1882, American congressman and writer Ignatius L. Donnelly published the book Atlantis, the Antediluvian World, in which he presented evidence to show that a sophisticated civilization known as Atlantis had once existed and was destroyed from the same event in the Bible known as the Great Flood. <laughs> do an updated he version of that. on both Plato's descriptions of Atlantis and the date of its destruction. Ignatius Donnelly was a congressman from Minnesota. All over the world. Ran for Congress as much with the motive in mind that he could get access to the Library of Congress. And he spent a lot of his time researching Atlantis. And he actually wrote a book where he puts lots of ideas into it, lots of speculation about what Atlantis really was, how it influenced the world, what these people were doing at this time, what technologies they had, and how it even influenced other cultures like Egypt and Mexico and other places around the world. Ignatius Donnelly is really important to the whole modern story of Atlantis. So he wrote this book basically theorizing that Plato, he was actually talking about something real. It wasn't made up and, and fiction. And that really like took off and everybody suddenly started to get interested in Atlantis and suddenly started looking for Atlantis and it became really fashionable to look for Atlantis from like the 1880s onwards. And these ideas have really kind of stuck in the consciousness of many people. And a lot of people go along with what he said as well as what Plato said and other early writers. It's the fact that Atlantis was a genuine landmass that got destroyed in a cataclysm and sunk beneath the Atlantic Ocean. But now Ignatius Donnelly saw that there was evidence for great catastrophes during that epoch, and his trigger for these catastrophes was a comet impact. So in that respect, I think he was way ahead of his time. And some people say that Ignatius Donnelly was like the godfather of alternative history. Like he's the first one that really started the, wait, maybe we could look at something through a different lens, or maybe these myths and legends and laws have some kernel of truth in them. Let's look for it. As the prophetic tales of this once great civilization were woven through lore and legend, alternative researchers were ignited by the wisdom and accuracy of the dating given by the sleeping prophet Edgar King. Happened, man. <clears throat> Um, come back if you want to hear some more.